This is the Tactical Leader Podcast, where we're on a journey of self-mastery and true leadership. I believe that in order to lead others, you must first be able to lead yourself. And in order to lead yourself, you have to first know yourself. If you want to learn the tactics to get to know yourself, to lead yourself, and to lead others, stay tuned to hear from industry experts as I unpack the tactics that they've used to build their business, build culture, and lead others. All right, so as we get rolling, I want to introduce as we get going, uh, of course, we can't be here without the Bucket Club, and we have a few people of the Bucket Club here this evening. I want to say a great thank you to Britt, smile away. So Britt does all the membership stuff, so membership events. So if you have anything that you want to attend here, the one that does all the amazing stuff, then we have Samantha. So if you want to know anything about the Bucket Club as a whole, I'm on the membership committee here, but Samantha is the one that has empowered us to do the veteran club within the club, which is what Battle Bruise is a piece of. And then, of course, Melissa, who is the most fabulous person in the Bucket Club. Pretty much she's the president of Bucket as a whole. Pretty fabulous. So huge thank you to the Bucket Club and the team here. They really empower a lot of us as members here, but also as veterans. They really want to support veterans as a whole. So huge thank you to them. And then, of course, we have sponsor Jason Fleming with Fleming Properties. He's the Community Relations Director for ATL Vets, which is my nonprofit for veteran entrepreneurship. Uh, so I'm going to hand the mic over to him as I baited him into saying something nice about veterans. <laughs> thank you. So one of the reasons I walked up a little bit late, we're talking a little bit about how can we do a pickleball event here? So Now, wait a minute. I'm going to say something nice about veterans. So this morning I got to meet with some people in downtown Alpharetta and we're going to do a humongous festival event that we're going to do it essentially for and with, whether they know it or not, ATL Vets and Atlanta. So I'm really excited about that September. So keep an eye out for that because I do have a heart not only for the vets, but I have a heart for pickleball and helping pickleball help vets. But yeah, I'm Jason Fleeman with Jason Fleeman Properties, Open Doors to Enrich Lifestyle. And that's my job. My passion is, again, vets and kids. But I'm real thankful that you guys are here. Roger is amazing, more amazing than any bald guy standing to my right. The dog, the, 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 and again, that's only to my right. But I got a chance to read Roger's book, and it's an amazing book. So thank you for coming and speaking to it. And I was going to bring it, but I was afraid somebody would steal it. And he wrote out this long, like, I'm amazing. Not, not he said, I'm amazing. So I didn't want anybody to take that from me. But so thank you very much for coming, sharing the story. I appreciate that. And you guys are in for a major treat. So back over to the so-called ball is beautiful. Naturally, right? Come on now. I heard he's all right. Who said that? I think that was my better three quarters. Like she's not all right. Right? Just because I don't have beautiful silver hair. So obviously we like to have a good time, y'all. So expectations for tonight. We want to keep this conversation. So a big piece of this is not just us up here talking. Now, to be fair, this is being recorded. So if you say something silly, we're going to pick it up on the mics, and we're probably going to put it down on social media and make fun of y'all. So be careful what you say, but it is being recorded. It will be re-uploaded on my podcast, on the Vetlanta website. Vetlanta is another piece of what has enabled Battle Brews. I want to bring Lloyd up and talk a little bit about Vetlanta before we dive too far into the – I know – I didn't even warn you. I didn't even tell you. You're so good at this, though. 
So Vetlanta is a big piece of what we're doing here in the veteran community in Atlanta. Um, obviously Vetlanta, and we want to make Atlanta the premier destination for veterans to live, work, play, and pray, which we're going to talk a little bit about with Roger. I'm going to bring Lloyd up real quick. Sorry. Not sorry. You already stole my tagline. So yeah, recognize a lot of people here. So Vetlanta, we started nine years ago from probably half this many people at our first meeting. And now we are nine years later, we have 8,000? 8,000 ish. 8, yeah, members. And our, our really our main service offering we, is our summits. So we have quarterly summits. The next one is going to be May 23rd at the College Football Hall of Fame. So that's always a great venue. And we have two great uh, keynote speakers already signed up. One is a general that is the first African American Air Force Thunderbird. So we're really blessed to have him. And the other is a local, is a retired colonel who is the commander of the 160th Special Forces when they went in and killed bin Laden. So yeah, make sure you mark it in your calendar, May 23rd. Keep coming to Battle Brews. And in addition to Battle Brews, we have Bethlehem Bees, which I'm sure Zach will cover the next event. And then we have Community of Faith, which is faith-based networking as well. So you can go to Batlanta.org, sign up to receive direct invites to our events, and they're all free. So we're chartered never to take money or never give any money. So we're focused on what we're doing here today. So Lloyd is phenomenal. Round of applause for him. Um, he recently released a book talking about a lot of what we're doing at Atlanta. Just suckered him into being featured next month here at the Bucket Club. So he's already committed. I'm going to throw it out there. Be back next month for uh, to hear more about Lloyd and his vision of Atlanta. But as far as the money goes, I'll take money, ignore him, but we'll talk about that more later. So as we dive into this conversation, he like so humbly set off to the side. I wanted you on camera. Like, you're too pretty to not be on camera. So Roger Hill, please give him a round of applause. So have a seat. I've got like a long bio to read. This is a pretty fascinating story. Also released a book, Dog Company. We may or may not have a few extra copies to go home to some engaged participants, potentially. We haven't decided how, so you're really going to have to earn the book tonight. Uh, but we're going to figure that out as we have a conversation. I'm going to give a rundown of Roger before we dive into a great piece of it. Um, he was an overall Army guy. Uh, come, in, oh, come on. Oh, I looked at you. I saw Air Force, Air Force. Go Army. Okay, come on, Brett. Can I get a... There we go. Beat Navy. Thank you. So, Army, infantry officer, combat deployments to Iraq, Afghanistan. Had several different pieces in Afghanistan from 08 to 09, where he's a company commander for Dog Company. Okay, the book. A little bit of what we're going to dive into tonight. So many fancy things. Band of Brothers. Anybody seen that? Band of Brothers. Okay. So, 506, Parachute Infantry Regiment. These are a lot of big words. I was also infantry, like, okay, hang on. Force of the Army in 09, in lieu of a general court martial after discovering an insider threat, uh, no less than 12 spies on the Ford operating base and taking matters in his own hands to root them out. It's a fascinating story that he's got. We're going to dive into a lot of what he did, not only in Afghanistan, but since Afghanistan. There's a lot of, hang on, let me keep scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. His bio is phenomenal. And his background is phenomenal. He is a graduate of the United Military Academy and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Georgia Tech? He's a smart person. <laughs> wow. All right. I had to ask. Is that Georgia Tech? Okay. So he's phenomenal and smart, I guess, and awesome. 
He's on the advisory board of Warriors Set Free, which is a nonprofit focused on guiding warriors to grow in their faith, healing from past, and winning life's battles, which is a big piece of how he was introducing this space, different things that he's doing there, really helping the veterans of faith piece. I know you've been attached to Atlanta and that space quite a bit. Overall, you're a really smart dude, and you've done some amazing things for the country. I'm George Tech, that's pretty smart. Beyond that piece, I'm going to have a seat and let you kind of give an intro to the audience. A little bit more than we might not know about you from that bio. Hey guys, how are you? Thanks for having me. He said he's nervous, so like, let's not be nervous. <laughs> <laughs> I live in Roswell, uh, originally from Alabama. My father was also military, so we moved around a lot, hence me not having an Alabama accent. <laughs> We've lived, my wife and I, in Atlanta since uh, 2009, basically since I left the military. And uh, I'll talk a little bit about the story itself. Is that better? Yeah. Okay, sorry. It's, yeah, awkward. Uh, You're so self <laughs> <laughs> Not to tell on the book, and I'm not trying to sell it, but it's a good story. It's got good reviews. But if you open the book and flip through it, you'll notice that some of the content's redacted. Maybe like two and a half percent worth. And it's because we went through a year-long battle with the Pentagon for approval, and a lot of back and forth with lawyers to get approval to publish the book. And they basically told us that we couldn't publish some of the parts of the book that we had put in. And we said, okay, well, we'll just publish it with redactions. So if you read, pick up the book and read it, flip through it, you'll notice some of those redactions. Some other interesting tidbits. When I left the military, they sus suspended my clearance. I had a TS in my last year of the military while I was deployed to Afghanistan. And when I got out, like a lot of guys and girls, I tried to go into the defense contracting world and I was unable to bring my clearance with me because they had flagged it. And I tried for several years, even hired lawyers to help me out with trying to get that clearance reinstated. The week that the book was due to be published, I got a call from OPM basically saying, hey, we'd like to talk to you about your clearance. That was really strange. And what they wanted ultimately to do was to award me my clearance so that I'd be back under the NDA that the military puts you under when you go into work for them. A lot of us don't remember that, but when you first enlist or commission, there's like a really long multi-page NDA and they can control what you say or don't say. So I went to, I was then working for Georgia Tech as a systems engineer and I went to my leadership and explained everything that was going on because my employment technically required me to have a clearance. And we had gone years where they had basically allowed me to work in operations roles because I couldn't get the clearance to do cleared work. And they said, no, we don't want you to get it. We want you to publish. So we worked on this book for about eight years. And there in the last hour, I can't say enough good things about Georgia Tech or the Research Institute anyways. Uh, they were great. They said, no, just we don't need you to have it. Go ahead and publish your story. So we published with the redactions and then you know, basically gave the Army the middle finger on the clearance too. So they couldn't control my speech. So this is, it's been a few years. I was in Afghanistan 08, 09. So Iraq, Northern Iraq, Western Iraq, and Ramadi in 06, 07. The unit dock company of five, the 506 had been in Iraq as well, but in a separate area of responsibility. So basically like next door to where I was deployed to. This was like, if you remember 06, 
right before the surge kicked off. And so like things were pretty bad at that time. There were a lot of naysayers about us being in, a, in Iraq and Afghanistan, but mostly for Iraq because we were quote unquote losing in the public opinion's eye. Dog Company and the 506, especially this particular battalion, was one of those units that really held the line before we could bring in that massive surge that kind of quelled the insurgency at that time. There were other factors that really helped too. So like a lot of people don't realize this, but in Iraq, different than Afghanistan, which I'll get more into, there were a different set of rules of engagement that we live by, right? So in Iraq, we fell, fell under a U.S.-led coalition command. And so like if you took a detainee off the street, or an enemy fighter or a combatant off the street and rendered them a detainee, you had them for an indefinite period of time. Not saying that I agree with that, I'm just saying we had a lot of latitude because it was a US-like coalition. In contrary to Afghanistan, we came under NATO. So if you remember in Afghanistan, we fell under a command called ISAF, International Security Assistance Forces, which was a military arm of NATO, which was a largely European-led command. And we had a four-day window. So once you took somebody off the battlefield, you only had four days to process them and basically book them. So huge differences in rules of engagement. Four days is really not a lot of time to work with, right? Another thing that was different about Iraq and was in, in Afghanistan that really helped us succeed in Iraq is we had Camp Bukha. Camp Bukha was the detention facility that was down in South Iraq. It could house up to 30,000 detainees. And in Afghanistan, the largest detention facility we had could house just under 6,000. So in Afghanistan, one of the problems we kept dealing with, and this book kind of revolves around, no pun intended, is a revolving detention system. We take people off the battlefield, and then it, because we didn't have room at the large detention facility, the command would basically say, well, yeah, they're bad, or we don't have enough space. So give them cab fare and take them back to where you found them. And we dealt with that all the time. I mean, this is like totally known, totally common, so much so that the ISAP acronym became ISAP fighting instead of, you know, international security forces during the year that I was there. So that's kind of where we're set. We deployed in 2008. The province that we went to was supposed to be peaceful. They had just conducted a weapons buyback program and bought back thousands of weapons. I don't know what kind of weapons, if they were really military grade or not. They were blessed by Karzai at the time as being a peaceful province. So we go into Wardak thinking that this is going to be an economy of force mission. There's not going to be a whole lot going on. We start to patrol outside of the footprint of the previous unit, and we just start getting our asses handed to us. I mean, not losing people every firefight, but six months in, we had over two dozen casualties and a couple of guys killed. And it was just like everybody sort of had this feeling like it's just a matter of time. Everywhere we went, we were getting ambushed two and three times on the way out, and then a couple times on the way in. I mean, just to add insult to injury. And so we started the, the leadership of my team. With my company only had about 100 people in it, and the OEA team that was assigned to our province, and then some of the other different teams that were assigned to our area started to talk about what was going on. And we ended up inviting a SIGINT team into assess our area. So they basically set up technology and they were able to scan the area for communications, had translators on the back end, and then they could interpret what was going on. 
And we set up what we would call faint or deception operations. So we would go out on a fake patrol and may or may not get hit, but we'd try to go to an area where we'd have the advantage terrain-wise. And then we would drum up a lot of communications that would get listened to, and then we would be able to kind of pinpoint where these threats were coming from. We had 12 spies on our Ford operating base. All guys that the U.S. military's procurement system, in this case, the Air Force's procurement system, hired to serve as construction workers, day laborers, and then almost our entire translator or interpreter force. The translator that worked with me, who had been an interpreter for the two units prior to me, was more or less the ringleader. And these guys were talking to people in Iran. They were talking to IED cells in Iraq. I mean, by the time they drew out this spider diagram and were able to link together who was talking to who, it was an extensive network. So just sort of going back in history a little bit, when I was in Iraq, we had two translators on my team and we traveled all over Iraq. I was on a military transition team, so like a combat advisor team. And so we, we moved all over the country we had two guys who were really talented. It's kind of a specialized mission in a sense. So they spoke Kurdish and then different dialects of Arabic. I got both of those guys into the U.S. through a visa program that was being offered at that time. When I was in Afghanistan, my translator, whose name is Sammy in the book, I won't disclose his true identity, but we gave him an alias, along with all the other Afghans to protect him. And I'll say this on the way to what I'm about to say. The guys that turned on us, that betrayed us, may have had a lot of pressure on them by the Taliban. Like maybe their families were being held hostage or the threat of, and it took me a long time to get past a lot of anger to a place of peace where like, I realized that like it was just a really shitty situation for everybody. You know, one, we never should have been there. That's what I believe. But two, like the circumstances were just bad all the way around, right? So the two translators that I had in Iraq, I brought back to the US. They're thriving. They're doing wonderfully in Iraq. Sammy, my translator in Afghanistan, I was already working to get him to the U.S. And then the SIGINT hit goes out. We find the 12, and he's the ringleader at the top of the, the 12. So I was devastated, devastated personally because he was like a friend to me. And, you know, when you lead a team, no matter what it is, whether you know, you're at a command level or a platoon level, or if you're leading a fire team, a squad, a battalion, no matter what it is, there is a, a unique aspect of leadership in that it is lonely with respect to the people that you're leading because you can't fraternize with them, right? And so Nori, I'm sorry, <laughs> Sam, Sammy was a close friend of mine. Like he had ordered uh, Af Afghan clothing for my wife and other members of my family, we had traded a lot of dreams and just a lot of things that we'd hoped to do in our lives. And like one of the things that I learned, not just being in Afghanistan, and you guys get this in other places around the world, is that we're all the same. We all have the same dreams, the same aspirations. And this guy was my, he was my boy. Like we were really tight, we were really close friends. So when I found out, I was devastated. Like I said before, we had, 96 hours, four days to get any combatant that we took off the battlefield to the next level of detention. Because of where we were and what was going on and because of the op tempo, our higher command wouldn't come pick him up. So 24 hours turns into 48, 48 turns into three days. And then like at the 80 hour mark out of those 96, 
me and my first sergeant are huddling and we're going, what are we going to do? Because the 12 that are on our base, which is a sample of the overall 60 or 70 that we're working on our base all the time to expand its perimeter, they were really bad and confirmed. We had no idea if there were more than just them, right? But they knew everything about our base. We had holes in the wire. We literally had gaps in our perimeter. There were just lots of schedule and locations of sensitive technology that a lot of these people that worked for us knew about because they lived and worked with us on a daily basis. So when our command, we realized our command wasn't going to come pick these spies up, we decided to interrogate them ourselves, right? And I wasn't gentle. So we had a lieutenant that had just arrived to replace a lieutenant who had been killed a week prior. He caught wind of the fact that we were interrogating detainees didn't know anything about what had happened because I kind of kept it on the down low and isolated to a corner of our base. And he got on the horn with my battalion commander without checking with me. And then before we knew it, we were into a 15-6, like knee deep into a 15-6, which is the type of investigation that the Army will execute to kind of try and discover. It's a discovery mechanism. That turned into an Article 32, which is a really invasive. So when we transition from a 15-6 into an Article 32, which ends in a hearing that's like a military version of a grand, a grand jury equivalent. They relieved me of command. And then we went into like a three and a half month long investigation. I was on a different base. My unit was being investigated. And there were lots of things that happened. Like one of the most heartbreaking for me was when CID came in. So the Army's version of NCIS. I have to say it that way because of Hollywood, right? Uh, but when CID came in with their you know, very clean and starched uniforms and flew in on the Black Hawks, Black Hawk helicopters onto our base to conduct our investigation. The same Black Hawks that I had requested but were denied to move the detainees off our base to begin with. They interviewed my company, like all 80-something people, three times. The first few times, everybody told them to pound sand because the guys were just that loyal to me. And not loyal to me because I demanded it, but because I earned it throughout the course of you know, me leading that company. The third time came around, they changed their questions around. And I noticed this because I had the case file of all of the sworn statements. And instead of saying, did this happen? They would ask them, have you heard of these things happening? And the first two rounds of, and this is a technique that they employ, right? Even to this day, I'm sure. In the first two rounds of questioning that they did, they would suggest that certain things happen because a lot of this was speculation for them. They didn't really know what they were investigating. They had an idea. And the guy that turned me in or ratted me out didn't actually see what happened. In the third round of questioning, what they would do is they say, have you heard of such things happening? So that you can see the subtlety in the questioning. And so the statements started to have meat on the bone because the guys then shared rumors that they had heard that were originally planted by CID, right? So we get into this Article 32, and the command has stacked a bunch of charges against me. We have media present. We have a guy from the Washington Post show up, and then we start this hearing. And we've got a judge, we've got a prosecution, a defense, and we have four days of this mess after three and a half months of an investigation where, I mean, there were times when I just I wanted to kill myself. Like being in isolation in Afghanistan with no comms or communication with anybody, and just not knowing if I was going to end up in prison for trying to take care of my guys, like just feeling betrayed and then like betrayed, right? By my own people. And we finally get to this article 32. I have no idea how it's going to go. And things are really hot because 
like just before that in the summer, what's the the unit that got overrun in Kunar province that the movie Out, Outpost is made out of? Does anybody remember that? That unit is from the 173rd, but it's a, a company from the 173rd. That had happened that summer. The Air Force, through some ground unit having called in the mission, dropped a bomb on a wedding party, killed like 40-something people. You guys probably remember that from like 2008. And so there was lots of stuff that was going on, and everybody became really political. And so I think what happens, I became a scapegoat, right? There was speculation that I had abused detainees. It became a national story. And so that particular command was like, okay, well, I'm going to show everybody that we're really hard on detainee abuse, right? Especially in light of what had happened in Iraq with Abu Ghraib. Almost everything that they accused us of was shown to not have happened, right? I was not gentle with some detainees. That was it. But there were a lot of things that were alleged, I mean, to include waterboarding. And all that stuff just went away. The command came back to me after having promised me at least two years in Leavenworth. They offered me a plea deal to just get out of the army. And so I just left. So in 08, I left the military rather than go to a general force marshal, which would have been the next step of the investigation. That would have been a much greater risk in my mind, just given the political circumstances and sort of climate. My last meeting with the unit was with General Slosher, who was the two-star in charge of the 101st. I don't know if any of you guys know of him or have, have ever crossed paths with him, but my last meeting, and it's the last chapter of the book, he slides two sets of paperwork in front of me. One of them is to basically just leave the military with a potentially other than honorable discharge. I didn't know what my discharge was going to be at the time. And the other one was kind of a surprise to me. He said, hey, if you'll just admit that what you did was morally wrong to me personally, nobody's in here recording this conversation, it's just you and I. If you'll just admit that what you did was morally wrong, I will laterally transfer you to another battalion and you can continue your career. And I told him thanks, but no thanks. And we'll just have to read the rest. <laughs> Obviously, a very impactful story as a whole. I didn't want to cut you off in the middle of it, but I didn't want to ruin the book either. So get the book. He's not going to tell you to go buy the book. I'll tell you to go buy the book. But what I'm, I'm really curious about, obviously, I mean, that was 15 years ago now. You transitioned into several other things. As far as veterans in the room, how many veterans do we have? You raise your hand. So... The boo girl over there got it. I love it. Um, so we have a good split, about 50-50, right? Veterans understand a lot of what you just said, and some civilians that don't understand a lot of what you just said because it's just a different world that we've come from. When you look at the transition from 15 years ago to now, and I know you just recently got a super fancy gig over uh, not far from here, um, what would you say is the biggest lesson you've taken from the battlefield to the boardroom into the corporate space, the civilian space, everything you've been through, which is even in the veteran space, very extraordinary. What was the one gleaming lesson you took that you're now applying in the civilian world? I didn't say this would be easy on questions. Yeah, I think, <laughs> I think this would transcend even like the corporate setting. So it's just the biggest lesson that I learned. And I really struggled with forgiveness for a lot of years. And one of the other things I struggled with was just, you know, Survivor's guilt, you know, is probably at the top of the list. But the other one was that the command went out of their way to label me as being disloyal because I fought back. And so 
And I tell you, if anybody's daddy was the army, it was me. Like I, I wanted every tab, every badge. I wanted every accolade. In a very unhealthy way, I let that part of my life, or, you know, my career in the military, define who I was. And then when it was ripped away from me, it was really hard for me. Like I blew up a marriage. I was very hard to get along with for a number of years, just in a very dark place for years. And if, if I had to kind of like measure or rate like those things that I just mentioned, I think being labeled as disloyal by the military was the hardest for me to get over personally. And then I don't know like how it hit me. I feel like this is a God thing, but I just, I had this revelation that loyalty is about being loyal to higher values and principles like honor, integrity, and those sorts of things. Whereas in the military, and I think a lot of corporate America can be the same way, people demand loyalty to the machine, right? They demand loyalty to the shareholder, to the company's mission and goals. And if I had to like, and I can't believe that I couldn't articulate this for years, right? Because it was like right there in front of my face, but I was loyal to my people in the face of a war that had no mission, no purpose, no insight, and a lot of people who were making decisions to advance their careers. And so I, ma I made the honorable decision, even though it was technically wrong, even though I technically painted outside the lines. And so I just, dude, I just carry that with me wherever I go. You know, like I'm okay if I'm in this circle where principles and values like honor, integrity, justice exist. And I had to start over after the military. They took everything from me. It cost me, you know, a life savings at that time to defend myself. I had a hard time getting a job because of some of the residue that came from having left. And it's a different story now, but I've had to start from zero to work to get that back. I'll almost start from a negative position, I feel like, because naturally a lot of us are going to leave the military and go to an organization that is military informed. So for me, that was defense contracting. And I had recruiters tell me with my discharge that they wouldn't even represent me. They wouldn't even promote me to companies. So I just, I dealt with a lot of betrayal and I felt like it was due to me having been disloyal, but like now it's totally different. And I'm just resolute and resolved that no matter where I go, that's how I lead. And that's the culture that I create around me. And over time you attract people like that. And over time you see people that are not about that. And you just tell them to F off early because you know what it's going to look like a few weeks, a few months, a few years down the road. And I don't have time for that. So I've gotten good at identifying people for what they stand for. And I know the value because I've walked through it from negative territory to, you know, what modest success I've experienced today. And in a sense, it's a, a decision out of self-interest to live that way because there's so much less trauma very much to include in the corporate workplace. So he's, he's being quite humble, you know, as you can expect from somebody like yourself. It's interesting to see, obviously from your story to what you're doing now, hard lessons in a lot of ways. And a lot of us as veterans, we have the uniform ripped from us. For me as a medical, I got medically retired. Officially just got out like last week. So it took two years for me to ever get that paperwork because it's a fight. They don't want you to go, but they want you to go. And it's like F off, but don't F off type of thing. 
right? So it's an interesting dynamic that we have to fight through, but it's also one of those we have that sense of morals, integrity, service that we want to give back. And one of the things that I always love highlighting is the legacy piece that we all focus on as veterans. What are we doing to create a greater sense in the world? Roger's been one of those that has been a huge supporter of Atlanta since we were introduced to our community. He's come out on the hikes that we do. He's always engaged in the stuff that we do. And one of the big pieces, we had a hike in Roswell a few weeks ago, and he brought some of the family along. I'm curious because there's usually a different answer for everybody. I can imagine the kids are a big piece of why you kept fighting. But when you think about legacy, when you think about that next step, what was it that kept you motivated to fight the injustice that was served to you, fight the, the big machine of something like the Army? And what kept you motivated on that? And talk a little bit about the kids because, like, y'all, it was one of those, like, we brought, like, snacks. And the kids came up, thank you so much for giving us snacks. And, like, just well-behaved kids. So, uh, really good kids. Who would expect it from somebody right now? Um, joking aside, like, phenomenal. So, I'm, I'm curious, what's that piece that's kept you moving forward? I think it's just what you said. You know, I'll just kind of, like, abstract one more level. I think whenever... You're in your worst place, you're focused on yourself. And when you're in your best place is when you're focused on outside of yourself, other people. So like, that's really what dug me out of a hole, I think. It's just getting into a habit. And it's taking every thought captive and capturing that thought as it comes to your mind, recognizing that that's the enemy you're dealing with today. And then just like beating that thought back until it becomes habit. And then once it becomes habit, you know, that's a whole different story. You've got momentum. But yeah, certainly for my kids. But it, it wasn't always, you know, for my kids. It was, you know, for the people that are around me. And like some of these guys have not seen justice. They were pulled into the investigation. I had a, a supply NCO that was from Guatemala, was nationalized through the military. I don't know the name of the program, but you can do service, right? And then the, the U.S. government will recognize your service and then they'll, you'll become a citizen of the U.S. In the course of the investigation, this supply NCO, who was nowhere near anything that had happened, <laughs> but I think they saw him as being kind of a passive character. He's a very strong individual, but he's quiet and timid. And they saw him as somebody that they could maybe flip. They told him that they would take away his citizenship if he didn't make a statement that was in agreement with what they had provided. They actually printed out a statement for him, right, based on the rumors that they had planted. So this command, like, really wanted that. But I mean, I had to do what I did to tell this story, or else, like, what they did to stand for me wouldn't be known, right? So really, it was to honor their legacy. It took us eight years to write this book. You better believe it was like torture reliving some of this stuff, right? But just thoughts of them and what they sacrificed. You know, I've got five guys on my wrist, right? Like, this is to remind me to live better every day, right? To live for them, even though they're not here. I'm living for them. Um, so yeah, it was largely to protect their legacy, to make sure that they were honored. And I would, like, this is like winning the lottery. Not everybody that has a shitty story, right, gets to tell it. Yeah on this platform. And in fact, I turned it down twice. <laughs> I had this publisher and author approach me two different times and I just wanted to climb under a rock. I was in such a bad way. And it took her writing an article that was published in the magazine that looked very balanced and fair. 
to get me to come out of that hole and work with it. Uh, yeah, thanks. So a big piece that is a struggle for veterans, and I feel like we can translate that over to the civilian world, whether it's business, corporate, entrepreneurship, we struggle, a lot of us talk, struggle bragging about ourselves or talking about ourselves, veterans especially. I released a book in November. You've had this one out. Lloyd just released a book. It's a very difficult thing to like get vulnerable enough to share something like this. And this, again, is extraordinary compared to my story in the, in the book I wrote. But what I would love to do, and I'm, I'm going to twist your arm on this one, I would love for you to brag about yourself for 30 seconds, 45 seconds, five minutes, right? <laughs> yes, it is. So there are a few things I know, but I know there's more than what you shared with me. Everything from Fox and Friends to different media highlights with the book. There's so many different things you've done to share this story. And again, it's not just like an easy, here, please share your story. It's a re, not victimization, but reliving the traumas, right? Re-traumatizing yourself to share the story for the betterment of. But there's also the other side, like the benefit of those around us for sharing a story, for going that extra step. So I want you to brag on yourself. Where have you been? Where have you been published? How amazing is the book? The feedback you've gotten? Anything that you want to just brag on yourself for, as long as you care to. I'm going to force at least 30 seconds and time it. And I think this is going to be a struggle for you because you're too humble. But brag about yourself for a few minutes. I'm a really good dad. They do love snacks. Like, they do love snacks. But I got to tell you, when they were younger and less aware, I was not so good. And I'm very fortunate that they didn't have to experience that side of it. But yeah, this experience and then only having them, like I get them 40% of the time. It's a very typical co-parenting relationship with my ex-wife, who's a wonderful woman. And you know she's honored in this book because she... She stood like a Spartan's wife would. She was amazing. And we just don't happen to be together now. And I'm very happily married, remarried, have more children. But those three that I've had since the first two have had all of me. And when I say all of me, they, they get all of me. I'm present, but I'm a stupid animal. You know, like <laughs> many of us can be. And it, it took me hitting the same wall a few times to, to become that. But yes, but I'm I'm a pretty damn good head. So I have a dog. I don't have kids. So I'm a really good dog dad. Um, no, I, I love that piece again. It shows, right? They come out to the hike and they say thank you. And not that any of us expect a thank you, but for a kid to have the forethought, not hey, go say thank you. Literally, she walked. Your daughter walked up to me. Like, thank you so much for doing this. Like that, that just speaks is a testament to the individual as a parent. And I want to transition over into a little bit of Q&A with the audience. And, and if y'all have any questions, thoughts that y'all want to share, we have a PowerPoint that I didn't get to. I'm sorry. Like I was so fascinated by it. One task. Okay. One task. Yes. One job. Sorry. I'm an, hey, hey, hey. It's Lieutenant. Excuse you. Don't insult me. and listening. Oh, gross. I'm not a peasant. Come on now. But I do want to transition over. Because at the end of the day, the Bucket Club will kick us out eventually. And I want to make sure we have time to engage with y'all. Because again, I want this to be a conversation. I see David out there. Before I hand it off to David, do you like pickleball? It's coming. 
you know what pickleball is? Because they set me up every time. I'll try most anything once. Okay, yeah. What kind of pickles are involved? <laughs> snacks. <laughs> well, snacks. In the backyard. Classics. Yes. I'll say, I'll speak louder. First of all, I'm from a military family. I may not have served myself. But we thank you, all of you, all of y'all, to make the stand here in a tall building to make it all possible because of your dedication, your resolve. And to that regards, we certainly need the Department of Defense. What would you say to the young people today of joining the military? What you should see? Yeah, so doozy to start. What advice would I give to young people who are considering the military? Or to consider? Would I encourage them? Encourage them, and if you do, what would be the top three reasons? Man, that's loaded. Um, I, have, I have so many opinions. Yes, well, I'm sitting my burden. <laughs> so we are in 130 different countries across just under 900 different bases that we know of. Like, that's stupid. And so I could not rightfully feel like it was the best thing to do for someone to be a part of that. Now, I was, but I wasn't aware. So I often run into people who are like on the verge of enlisting or they're like getting ready to go to MEPS or they've got a date or they just finished basic. And so if they're there, I'm just like, dude, I'm so proud of you. Congratulations. But if I get a hold of mom and dad and they're like, Hey, I want my kid to go in the military. I'm like, hey, schedule 30 minutes. Let's talk. And I work for defense contractor. I'm very proud of the work that I do. I think we need a strong military. I think we need a strong military industrial complex. It's not necessarily a bad word. It's just, it's being used to drive a lot of decisions because again, we're trying to please stake shareholders, right? But we don't have any business being in so many countries meddling as we have. Iraq and Afghanistan at the top of the list. In short. Hello. So my name is Natalia Martin. And basically, I was going to ask a question. First question was going to be about telling your story and your experience and your living. And then when he asked that question, it kind of made me shift in my feet. So I just retired last year, 20 plus years, Air Force. But one of the things that you just mentioned and that he just asked, part of my career, 12 years of that, I was actually a recruiter. And now part of my retirement was they forced me to retire. And now coming out, I'm a coach and motivation speaker. And in doing so, I had that same struggle of telling the story or reliving the story or having people have the empathy or compassion to understand when it's like, how can I help those going forward? And even yesterday was the anniversary of my experience in Iraq, which I shared the light for my social media to, to represent my fallen as to what happened to when I was there, but it gets deeper. Like you said, there's parts where you just feel like, I can't even imagine writing this book. But then there's people that say, write a book, you know, you should do that. How did you, you said you turned it down twice. How were you able to build 
yourself up enough. I know you mentioned the person read the article, but internally, like mindset, physically triggering, how are you able to get the momentum to even relive and then go back and rehash the redacted part? Like, what was that process, whole person, like in a whole person concept? I'm sorry for the Q&A. <laughs> and, and, and share to what you, you know, whatever you feel to share. I didn't do it well. Yeah. I, I wish I could say like I had, you know, I got to a place and then I started doing it well. I was just kind of like, I did it poorly for eight years. Maybe it took us eight years because I was, you know, the, the long pole in the tent between myself and Lynn, who's a professional writer. I think I got a good friend who does long distance, like 100 plus. He's always telling me to just go to a lower gear. And he's telling me stories about running these ultra marathons where literally his steps are six inches at a time. So that kind of stuck with me, I think. And you surround yourself with people who believe in the, the vision and the goal, right? You tell somebody that you're working on a story, a lot of people will rise. You know, and that in itself is hard. And then on top of that, if it's not a story that you really want to tell, but you feel obligated to, that's like strike two. So just really holding the ones dear and then counting the ones that show up and then giving them your time and treasure. And then, you know, baby steps. And like, that sounds very cliche, but like in an ultra marathon sense, Right. Just doing a little at a time, coming up with a, a list of you know what you're going to work on this day, and then having an overall checklist of all the things that you have to do to get the story out, and just being resolute to work on it, no matter what people say. But I didn't do any of that, though, and it's what I ended up doing. So, yeah. so I wish I could answer that better. But that's good enough. So, <laughs> so just a, a couple to double tap on that piece, because that was, I wrote my book, actually a massive piece of it. I didn't do it well. And there was a greater calling attached to, I have to tell the story, well, Joey, I have two on my wrist, and I don't have enough room for the others I lost. There was a moment that I got caught by somebody close to me that is very strong and flexes way too often. I had an anxiety attack the month before the release. I'm like, I can't have them do it. I'm done. Trash it, not going to publish it. There's no way I'm going to let people know about my business. And we're all very protective of not only our business, but how's it going to, knowing what you do, similar, right? How's it going to impact those around us? Or how are people going to think about us when they know what we've been through? And again, this is less extraordinary, right? I think you said it really well. And I want to double tap on the community around you, those four or five people that will catch you in that moment. That doesn't apply just to a book. It applies to life's transitions, things that happen in life. You know, a big piece of this is how do we get us together more? Yes, this is a business setting, but you were at the hike in Roswell, right? Like you're showing up to the community stuff and you do not live close, right? It's a trek for you to get up here, right? So it's one of those you're doing the right things. So if it becomes one of those you have a story to tell, you feel like you need to tell it, who do you know that can help support, not necessarily write the book, 
but catch you in that moment where you trip a little bit, where you're saying, F it, I can't do this. Because that was the most impactful thing for me, where I had people say, no, 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 this has to be told. You, these people deserve for you to tell that story, right? And that was the greater calling that is a testament to what you did, but having those people close to you. If you don't, as veterans, we don't have those people. We choose not to have those people. Get over that. Find those people that you're willing to share that with and have those panic and anxiety moments and then write the book anyways. Several around. Jason, did you have yeah, yeah. Good. Comment and question. First, you said the guys in your wrist, you, you want to honor them with how you live your life. You know, when you handful of miles, you're honoring them and how you live your life. Not only, I've seen you in your element as, as a father, the people in your church, how you help homeless, how you help the traffic, you're honoring them and how you live your life. So, you're welcome. Question. So, there's a quote, and I know I'm going to butcher it, but it, it's something to the effect of in order for evil to thrive, it just takes good men to do nothing. I think there's a fine line between that and being the police of the world. I know you talked about how we're in so many stations, or stations so many areas around the world. Talk about Iraq, talk about Afghanistan. Should we have been there? And then maybe if you want to, Taiwan, what's going on there? And then the whole Russian Ukraine situation too, if you want to chime in that too. Also, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you believe that, that's I think I held it wrong. If you subscribe to sort of mainstream narrative or motivations for how 9 11 occurred, not saying that I do or don't, I'm just saying like if, if you believe we were attacked in the way that the media portrayed, the government portrayed that we were attacked. We still didn't have to go into all of Afghanistan. Uh, we occupied the entire country, and the people that allegedly attacked us were really from a very small, sort of concentrated area on the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan. So that, on its face, doesn't make sense to me. Iraq is just a bold-faced lie, in my opinion, and then. We try to justify or legitimize going into Iraq with humanitarian reasons after the fact. I don't think we should be involved in the Ukrainian conflict. That's really hard for a lot of people to hear. I'm not saying Russia is an awesome country or the government, you know, is, is well intended. I'm sure Russia is full of wonderful people just like Iraq. Afghanistan, the U.S., I mean, you name it, everybody has the same dreams, the same aspirations. A lot of times they are exploited or sabotaged by the people that are in power. But I also can make, I think, a very logical case for Russia feeling cornered by NATO over time. They've put missile systems all throughout Europe in a fashion that is encroaching upon, I think, what they consider or feel, or if I were in power of a country experiencing the same um, conditions, I would feel like I'm being encircled. And so, you know, for that reason alone, I feel like we have 
like someone would create an emergency and then want to go in and provide the rescue. I think we've created the emergency and then are now going in to provide the rescue. And I tell my kids this all the time. Two people can be right about the same issue. Two people can be wrong about the same issue. One person would be wrong, the other person would be right. There's lots of wrong on both sides. There's also some things that I think are unfortunate in terms of a position that I think the Russian government and its people hold that we aren't hearing because the mainstream media apparatus is so controlled by select few set of corporations. And I think there are some legitimate and valid counterpoints that are buried in that, that are worth considering and bringing to the table, just frankly aren't getting the line of data. Set. Actually, got two more on this side, and if I, I come on that side, then we come back. So, real quick before we keep rolling, just to be mindful before we get kicked out, we've got just about five more minutes for questions. I want to make sure we have time to network after questions with everybody. So, I know we've got a couple more over here. Let's try to keep them semi concise, not totally dissect the Ukrainian conflict. You know, that's a great conversation. But I want to make sure we have time to leave the QA for y'all to have one on one conversations and also we have some votes so try to keep these a little bit short so we can transition back over into networking and one-on-one conversation i am robert bassett i'm ex-navy subs y'all haters i hate y'all <laughs> but this is something similar to what my veteran group is going through when i got out of the military i had I didn't understand how to even relate to people because we were in this, you know, when you're in the service, you're just, it's almost like it's a whole nother society. Then you come out into the real world and the world is not like what we went into. My question to you is, how did you come out and become normal? I guess that's the word it is. And become just a part of society or did you have challenges becoming a normal person even dating or just being a part of normal society did you notice a challenge and did you understand that a lot of people just couldn't do it i had some friends kill themselves because they just they couldn't do it are you normal right <laughs> That's a, that's a, I think that's my favorite question. Thank you for that. I think veterans are a minority class. And so like some of us can be minorities inside of minorities, right? You're institutionalized much like there's been studies done. So I'm only repeating, you know, I think language that's been given in research, but much like prisoners would be institutionalized in a prison society. There's a, a certain way. I think there are lots of people who are institutionalized, not you know psychologically, you know, as in being committed necessarily. But like if you're an athlete who's really performed at a high level through high school, especially these days when kids are like already identified to go pro in middle school, right? And you go through high school, you do a prep, you know, you're basically already earmarked to become a pro. You go through college, you go, you know, maybe semi, like that's a whole way of life that most people can't relate to. There's lots of different people who go through that sort of thing. And for me personally, 
because I wore the military because it was so much my identity. I had to like really think through how I was leading with my veteran status with people. And I stripped it all away. I got to a place where I'd be like AAR and after action reviewing my, my interactions with people. And I'd be like, yeah, I, I kind of came off like a veteran <laughs> without really saying it. And I wouldn't do that again. And I did that. And then I got to a place where I pulled it in piece by piece based on what I believed to be healthy and based on reactions that I got from people who were honest with me. But I wore it on the outside and that's not healthy. And so I just, I learned how to strip away those things that made me lead or stand out in that way. And then I added things back piece by piece in a way that was healthy, but I was in control of doing that. Whereas when I first got out, I wasn't in control of that aspect of who I've become. Great answer. Again, thank you for your service. So we now know that through your experience, you may not perhaps recommend to others. It is there is a reason why recruitment is targeted toward less than our brain completion of age 25, teenage, for example. So what would your advice be to your 21-year-old self, right? As well as in this perspective, all of us are going through some type of a renewal, readjustment, reinventing ourselves. So what would be your advice to yourself, a 21-year-old, and with that being an author, two books that you'll recommend outside of yours? I thought it was supposed to be easy questions and answers. I'm just going to try to be concise. So I, uh, I would really try to walk through history with my 21-year-old self. I'm trying to picture my. This is weird because I'm trying to picture myself as an uncle, maybe talking to myself. Just really demonstrate because this is what I do with kids that I meet is I try to show them like how we basically come into this life in the U.S. assuming that being on a war footing as our country has been for many decades as being normal it's not a normal thing and so I try to help them step outside of that and look at it from the outside looking in and help them understand that, that like that's not normal and it shouldn't be that way and I just I try to keep up with current events. I try to keep, you know, I, I'm military history is history because it's you know, military history spans so much of what's gone on in the world. So I try to walk them through some examples that would make sense. And then the book that has saved my life is the Bible. So if I, I'm just going to pick one. My book's free. <laughs> <laughs> no Bible, though. It's not a Bible. No, that was a terrible comparison. So we've got about two minutes. Sure. He's like no, handing you no, the mic. We're good. Yeah, she, she's talking. If Dave uh, can ask twice, she can ask once. Yes. Okay. Okay. Hi, my name is Tara Edwards. I'm a FedEx and I'm a recruiter for them. So I have a question. How do you pick your employer when you're coming out? Like, what is your mindset? What can we do as employers to be more vet friendly and pretty much build that relationship and that bridge over to what you just came from? Because it seems like you served, you gave, and it didn't always come out the best. So now you're about to come into, you know, civilian life and give more time. So 
What does that look like for you and how can we be better employers? So I'm going to have to like start this answer. Choose UPS because that's who our president <laughs> So, Lloyd Knight, the founder of Atlantis, with UPS for quite a while. So you're fired. Yeah, yeah, just get, just get, get, get. Good employers want to make an investment on people that they feel like will be a good steward of that investment and provide a return. And we'll stick around. So to me, picking an employer is more about the culture that you get to work with. I mean, outside of like, you know, are they doing something that I do or don't agree with in terms of providing a product or service once you're sort of past that decision? To me, like I could be doing anything if the culture is positive. And then Rick's going to kick me because Rick's a, he's a, a mentor of mine as well. Just a good friend. I actually, I reserve time during like my interviews telling employers things that I don't feel like I'm good at because, I, and you're going to kick me, so I'm just going to turn <laughs> a little bit. I really feel like you know, there's times that you just need to get a job, and that's a different circumstance. But if you can take your time and go where you want to go, see how people respond to you disclosing like things that you feel like you're not strong at technically. Or things that you feel like you know you want to learn, but you just don't have experience in, and then be able to articulate that exactly. Be able to say, you know, like, but I, I really want to learn. I really want to grow in this area. But I, I also always end with, I will give you two years. It's on a handshake. Nobody can make me do that. And if it's a shitty culture, and they sold me a bill of goods, you know, a contract is a two-way street. Whether it's a handshake or written but if they're not upholding their end i don't have any problem with smoke. but I, I also like i think it's really important to employers i think you would agree with this too is they know that if they provide the training or if they're going to help you learn that thing that you're missing that will make you useful to the team if they know that you'll stick around to get it and put it to use and then get value from it like they're that much more willing but i think it, it all comes down to humility really i think that's how do they respond to you being humble Right. And like, if they're like really cool about that, like that's a safe place to operate. Right. And like, if they're on the other end of the spectrum, then that's not a place I want to work. So it's kind of a risk, but that's kind of how I've taken it in the last couple of jobs that I've had. And just to throw two more cents in there, what can Brown do for you? No, do we win that? All right, all right, all right. Now Probably wasn't as funny. Come on, y'all. That's a good tagline. All right, all right. So I'm going to shut down the Q&A piece. Oh, oh, I've got not pickleball. No, it's not pickleball. So first of all, who gave him the mic? You did. Took it. So again, I truly enjoyed reading the book, and my dad's a veteran. I know I look like one with the hair, but I'm not. But I can truly appreciate you know, the emotion in that book, especially like when you're talking about saying so uh, you know, if anybody's ever had a, a very you know, close friend or confidant or whatever, just reading that portion right there, it, 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 that's, that's not a veteran thing. That's a personal thing.
But I do kind of want to flip the script just a little bit since Zach put a little pressure on you. I want to put some pressure back on Zach. So he talks a little bit about, asked you the question about praising on you for about 30, 40 seconds. I know some of the stuff you've been talking about stirring up some emotions in Zach. I've actually noticed it as I walk around the room. So Zach, how about doing a little praise on yourself for about 30 to 40 seconds? No brown nose. Yeah. Wow, that, that, uh, that, that's not about betrayal. That, that's, that's, wow. not, that's not brown nose, and that's like, hey, if you can dish it, you can take it. Yeah, when you hit my collateral damage. That hurts. And that didn't even come from Taylor, that was all me. So, I'm not good at this piece either. Honestly, the big piece that I'm working on, the veteran club here at the club is a big piece. Um, ATL Vet, supporting veteran entrepreneurship is a big piece of what I'm focused on. Hugely empowered by Vetlana. I'm the marketing chair for Vetlana, so we do so many amazing things there. Really, my big piece is giving back to entrepreneurs. Um, during my darkest time, the one thing that I found allowed me to continue the mission was business ownership. And I was in a dark spot. My book focuses on being at the end of a dock with a pistol in my mouth. And that was two months and or two years and one month ago. So I'm like at that point of struggling where we've all had those dark moments. So the big piece for me is giving back to veterans that want to start a business because that's the only thing that can be going. So there's a business program I run up here, the Bucket Club, different endeavors that I'm focused on, a pickleball tournament that we're building and growing. Jason is the community relations director for ATL Vets, so he wants to plug pickleball way too much. There's a three-day business conference I'm hosting in August focused on entrepreneurship, different things that we're working on to bolster veterans in this space. Vets don't get here enough, right? We go to the corporate space, we do different things in the veteran space, but we don't get in the business space to be mentored by non-veterans. One of the greatest lines I've ever heard that I will steal from you forever is that veterans are only as strong as our non-veteran supporters. And a big piece of the Buckhead Club has been that support for veterans. And I want to give that to veterans and expand this piece. So a uh, heavy piece of my endeavor is trying to drag veterans here as much as I possibly can. So my big ask is like, share this. We can only grow as a community if we grow as a community, right? But that takes you all doing that. And that's a big endeavor for me. Uh, another piece of it is I have to give him a shout out because I always forget or he's behind the camera, so I never drag him in front of the camera. But Nate Sampson. Nate is with Social Pro Video. He's been a part of the business group that I have here. He's also the director of media relations for the nonprofit. He videotapes and makes me look like Ryan Reynolds. Like, if y'all <laughs> watch this back. Without hair. With the hair. It's more like Ryan Dead, Deadpool Ryan hair. Reynolds. Yeah. Like, I need a mask on. I was about to say, I need a mask, definitely. Yeah. So I, I have to give him a shout out because he's one of those guys. He hasn't served. He's a non-veteran that does nothing but support veterans. You'll see him at the summits for Atlanta, videotaping it, recording it, throwing it up there for us, doing interviews. Our last summit at Omni. Sure. Thank you. The Omni with the Warrior Alliance. He was sitting there doing interviews with people with the Warrior Alliance, veterans, and highlighting the impact we're having. His greatest piece that he's contributing to the veteran space is like helping us tell stories. We suck at that, y'all. We suck at that. We don't want to tell our story. We deserve to tell our story because what I realized through my process was of writing a book was like, our lives were extraordinary to non-veterans. It's a day in our life. So yeah, we've all gone through it. But the reality of it is that we have very exceptional stories that deserve to be told. 
And Nate captures that in a way that I couldn't do. So the non-veteran supporter helps us tell that story. So a huge shout out to Nate. We give him an actual round of applause. But please stay behind the camera. He has too nice of hair. I can't let him up here. Am I good? Did I brag now? You are good. Perfect. I, I, if you're gonna if you're gonna put pressure on our guests, we gotta put it right back on you. Taylor, take the mic from him. So last thing, a couple last things. Traitor. <laughs> so a couple things that I always forget to do. Parking is validated. Go to the front desk. We have parking validation. If you're not familiar with Bucket Club, put the one you put out of the machine. That one first, and the one they give you, put it in, all validated. If you want to know more about the Buckhead Club, what they're doing with veterans to support veterans, come talk to me, come talk to Samantha. Huge the things we're doing here within the Buckhead Club. So I definitely recommend that piece. If you're a member of the Buckhead Club, raise your hand. So a lot of non-members in this room. You want to be a member of the Buckhead Club. Get them, Britt. Get them, Britt. Get them, Britt. Savage. I love it. I love it. There's so many things happening here that are supporting us as veterans that we at least deserve to ask the question, what can the Buckhead Club do for us? So if you have that question, come ask me, ask Samantha. The last thing before we move into networking and just bugging Roger like crazy, we have five books. You want to give them off one-on-one or do you want to... Oh, David's like waving up and down. I've never seen him do gymnastics, but I think that... (laughs) I think that's a cartwheel. David gets one. There, and then, so there's three more. You want to call them out? Taylor can hand them out for you. Yeah, Taylor can hand them out. So, so whoever wants them. Whoever. <laughs> Get them, Britt. So Samantha. Samantha. So for the Army Infantry, S-A-M. Just keep it short and sweet. Too many letters, too many syllables. I'm Army Infantry. I can say that, all right? Air Force might consult the full name. So her dad's actually a veteran as well. Uh, was part of 173rd, Italy, Vicenza, the one stationing we all wanted. Right? So again, supporting the veteran community, not a veteran, but actually has ties. The ties in the veteran space who are really deep that we may not recognize. Um, so Roger's going to suck up to her. Well played, sir. Um, I actually grew up in New York City. No, 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 no. Nobody cares about Fort Benning. The worst place in the face of America, Fort Benning, Georgia. Sorry. Doesn't veterans get a discount here? So, David, thank you, because I won't throw it out there. I always forget that piece. So beyond support for stuff like this, the Bucket Club is actually negotiated to deal with veterans. They hook us up. They we're not one to ask for discounts. I'm not that guy normally. But to give back to the veteran space, they actually have a special rate for veterans. So thank you, David, for bringing that back up. But we also have just a massive hookup. So if you're a veteran and you want to learn more, all joking aside, talk to Samantha. Come talk to me. We'll figure it out. And I'll be quiet. I was just going to say the book is fantastic on Audible. If you do that sort of thing, we hired a guy who's Broadway trained, and he reads a different voice for several of the characters. So Brent, Brent Strong, he has that voice. You, you're that guy? Um, but it's fantastic on Audible if you already have an account. If you buy it on Amazon, I think it's like seven bucks right now. So it's a lot, buying it for me through my website, I charge a lot more. So just go to Amazon or Walmart or Books A Million, you'll get it for a lot less. 
you plan on doing a movie? Ryan Reynolds. He <laughs> <laughs> got serious. I was oh, he didn't say it. So, you need a couple things for a movie from what I've learned, and I'm not in that machine at all. But we have a, a director who's interested. We have a screenwriter who's interested. You need a, a strong production team or a producer who has access to a team. And then you need an A-lister. So I've got two of the four. And of course, you use that in a sales pitch to go find funding. But we've got a plan. I've got a director and a writer and folks with access to a fund who fund movies that are interested. So we're looking at an eight-part video-on-demand series. This is like a thirty million dollar movie. It's not; these aren't cheap to make because of the because it's a war movie. So, yeah, that's like winning a lot of money. That's because it's low budget in Hollywood. He's a film guy. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Can you get us Ryan Reynolds? (laughs) (laughs) Ryan Reynolds can't play you and Roger. He can only play one of you. Uh, Right. It's terrible. All right. So I'm going to shut down this part of it. We've got four books that Taylor has, the really angry-looking blonde that flexes too much. <laughs> if you want to book, harass her. No, Roger. Got bigger no. Guns than you, You're fired. You're some, you're, you know. We'll shut this part down. Y'all stay for a few. I think we have maybe 30 minutes or so before the club kicks us out. Uh, technically, they close at 7. We're past 7, so they're gracious with us. Network, chit-chat a little bit. Bud Roger, he's an amazing man. If you don't have his contact info, get it from him. Uh, get the book. And overall, thank y'all for being here tonight. I appreciate y'all. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Tactical Leader Podcast. If this episode helped you along your journey of self-mastery and has inspired you to do more, I challenge you to head over to myvoicechallenge.com so you can find out how you can discover your voice claim your independence, and build that thriving business that you've always wanted. Again, that's myvoicechallenge.com.